Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. So, Stacy and I are here and we are engaged in this conversation with parents from different parts of the country as part of this school is compulsory series um, and we were able to have some really really interesting dialogue with three different parents um, which we're really excited to share with our listeners this is like an extra special treat right now it this whole podcast thing is just so amazing to me the like different parts of my life that are getting to coalesce as we do this so I have the pleasure listeners to introduce I don't even know what to call you, <laughs> honestly. Um, but I will let her introduce herself, Miss Ashley. Go ahead. Well, hello. My name is Ashley um, or Mercedes, depending on where you know me from. Um, I am 37, recently 37. Um, I have two children. I'm from the illustrious Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> went to Howard University, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, I have two children. My son is eight, and my daughter is one. And we moved to Charlotte about, I want to say, like, maybe two months ago. So, yeah, I've been doing the stay-at-home mom thing for a while, the entrepreneurial mom thing for a while. So that is, yeah, my life in a nutshell thus far. So I think what's going to be really interesting is we're having these series of uh, conversations with parents um, and their experience in the school system. What I think is interesting about your experience is that you have it in, although all along the East Coast, very different spaces. Mm -hmm. So your own experience in New York City and Brooklyn, I know you went to school in Manhattan, um, or as we say, the city, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then moved to Philly which is another context, still city, but not New York City, mm -hmm. and now in newly in Charlotte. So mm -hmm. why don't you start out just by sharing a little bit about your own education experience? Yes. So I grew up in East New York. Um, I went to public school for about two years. Um, my mother said I was getting a little too fresh. I was too big with the talk back. <laughs> so then she put me in a um, small Christian school from third grade to eighth grade. Um, and that school was also in East New York. Um, all of my teachers, like every single one was West Indian, mm. 15 and up. Um, so very stern when it came to education. But there was also like a, a subculture of like accountability, putting forth their best, um, and it did help with just being around, you know, just people who look like you um, at that age. Um, after I left that elementary school, then my mother sent me to an all-girl Catholic school in Manhattan, in the village specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was also a very interesting experience because I went from Brooklyn all day, every day to um, predominantly like Irish and Italian um um, school even with the teachers being nuns and you know them being predominantly from Europe and then also with my classmates um 
And interestingly enough, I was thinking about this earlier, that introduced me to, how do I say this without sounding crazy? White people that weren't from America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those students were really like, from Romania, from Italy, from Ireland, like there wasn't, like, I don't even, to be very honest, I don't, I didn't even know what, I was introduced to being in school with white people from, with white people being from Europe, not white people being from America. Wow. Um, So that was a very interesting experience too. Um, And, you know, there was a handful of Black students there too, but it was interesting to learn you know, just different cultural dynamics, like between 14 and 18. Mm. Um, so that was a good experience. I'm glad my mother did that. I was not happy about that when I was 14, but I'm <laughs> happy about it at 37. Um, and then after that, I went into, I need to go to an HBCU. So then I went from a school that maybe had about, I don't know, 150 students to Howard University. Um which was also, you know, still high on academics, um, also meeting Black people that were just not from America. So then I got to, you know, meet other Black people from the diaspora as well, Africans, West Indians, European Black people. Um, and that was also, you know, just a good experience just in terms of my education coming from small Christian school with a bunch of West Indians to uh, all-girl Catholic school, then to Howard University. So when I think about my education, I don't think about what I've learned. I think about all the pockets of people I've been around um, and how that just informed how I moved, how I think, how I relate, what I what I think when I see people. Like, it's interesting. I, I think about where are people from when I see them now because I've just always been around a lot of people that were from a lot of different spaces. So yeah, I had, I think I had a very good school life when I think about it in that context. That's so interesting. And I love what you just shared about your schooling experiences being more about the, like the context of it, not so much mm-hmm. about what you learned in the books. We had conversations with students as well. And this is something else that they named, like they cared a lot about one, like how teachers related to them, but then also like the social aspect of it really Mm -hmm. informed them. Mm -hmm. Um, They highlighted that as something that's really important. So it's really interesting to hear you say that as well. So now you have this kind of varied experience, but I see a through line of like diversity, but not in a way that people think about it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Talk to us about your experience with your own children. So you have... (laughs) Your son Ezra mm-hmm. had an, ex- an, an ex- interesting experience in school, and then you have now a one-year-old who you're going to be preparing mm-hmm. to get into the school systems. Um, talk to us about your experience there. So with Ezra, I just had it all in my mind that I was going to have this kid that drew pictures all day and I was going to send him to like a Spanish immersion school and by five years old we'll be talking in three different languages and he'll just be like this kid right because I think when you have children you have them in your head before you have them in real life yep so I was like oh yeah we're gonna I applied to the Spanish immersion school was very devastated when they told me no I was like what do you, what do you mean I'm from 
I'm, you know, my children are from Brooklyn by way of me. Like, this is like a, you need us, right? Like, we are going to give you the pamphlet that you desire. Right. Um, But it wasn't like that. Um, Ezra, my son, who's eight now, he had a speech delay. Um, So that was my first experience with understanding that what you want for your kid in your head is not what they need. So even though I wanted him to have this cool boy experience at three or four years old, it just, it wasn't about that. It was about him being in a school or a place that can really help him um, basically catch up with like language and speech and social. So for Ezra this far, I, I will say that we have been very, very lucky with making sure that he's been in spaces that saw him completely, you know, because mm-hmm. he, he had struggles with, um, you know, just behavior, social, with speech being the main part of that. But his schools thus far have been um, small schools. So for like um, preschool, it was a small school, like in the house, which is interesting because my um, high school before moving to their bigger building was in a house. Oh, wow. It like, yeah, it was in a house in the village, like on Avenue A or something. So you know, maybe even instinctively that was familiar to me. Like when we pulled up to that preschool and my husband was like, oh, what is this? this is in this little house. And I was like, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this is what he needs. Um, and those people were excellent, you know, on the days where he was really struggling um, to communicate, you know, they really worked with me to work with him to make sure that he got, you know, what he needed. Um, and then after that, he was able to, you know, I will say, um, not without his struggles, but I will say for the most part, you know, transition into regular school um, um, well. I was very against public schools when I when he was a little kid. I was like, oh no. Because, you know, I went to private schools for most of my life. So I was right. like, well, public schools, you know, they don't listen. They don't, you know, I have to go up there every five minutes. Um, but I, I've learned that the type of parent you are and if you want to be seen, that is how your child is seen. Mm. You know, so me showing up, me checking in with the teachers, even saying good morning, how you doing? You know, it made it a situation where if maybe there was something going on, they would come to me first rather than, you know, sending me a email or something. It was more of like a personable thing, um, which really helped with me gauging, okay, you know, maybe we should work at home a little bit more on these things versus, you know, your teacher said you're having trouble with this, you know, let me pick up the baton. So I've always been, um, you know, just very hands-on with this education because I don't want someone to tell me something that I don't know about my kid. Mm-hmm. So if he's doing bad in this, well, I'm going to say bad, but if he's struggling in like math or reading, I feel like I should know that before you tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that you think specifically he should be working on. I feel like as a present parent, I should be able to take that information without being offended. And then get on my bean at home and then make sure that we're meeting somewhere halfway to make sure he's getting where he needs to go. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, thus far it's been well. And then now he's starting school next week in the South. So, you know, we'll get to see how things are different down here and just in terms of like parent engagement. I did notice when we were at the school that P- that PTA is different down here. Like they uh-huh. are <laughs> This ain't no just honor for the text alert. Like, they're like, what committee do you want to be involved in? Do you um, want to fundraise and bake sale? Do you want to be a room parent? Um, but I like that because I think that 
teaching your kid, you need to be all hands on deck. It can't just be you come home with homework and then I actually every five minutes if you're done and then, you know, we take it from there. Right. So, right. so far, so good. Um, I have to ask this question because Ezra had a speech delay and so did my son as well. Mm-hmm. We got to interview, by the way. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. It was pretty <laughs> um, and also having been a special ed teacher, mm-hmm. this sort of um, narrative around Black boys in school, I'm mm-hmm. curious as to whether you had any fears around that, had any experiences around that. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like for you, that that particular aspect? So I always say I became a stay-at-home mom because God knew I had Ezra. There mm. was no, and I mean that, there's no way on God's green earth we would have made it through the first five years of his life if I really, if that wasn't my only job. Mm. Um, I remember the first time we was at a playgroup and the lady that ran the playgroup, she was like, hmm, you know, I realize he's yelling and screaming and he's not really using his words. You know, you should take them to be evaluated. And I remember as soon as she said that in my mind, I was like, you know, you, first you get not offended, but at first you're like, like, what do you mean? You don't know him. But something in me told me like to run mm. people that, you know, help your children. And from that moment on, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to find like advocates, you know, everyone is not going to be on your side. Everyone is going to, not everyone is going to really try to help your kid. It's more so about you checking off these boxes on their paperwork. Mm. Um, And we were lucky. His speech therapist was so, so good. Like she really held my hand through getting him like OT. And Mm. um, I remember at one point they was even trying to figure out if, if he needed an ABA. And I was like, ah, you know, that just for my son didn't feel like, the proper thing but she was really sent from God really when it came to like helping me navigate that system because it is a system mm-hmm. you know all they want to do especially unfortunately for our sons is just say you know just put them there you know and it took a lot of time a lot of work um my husband and I really really worked with him with like learning his alphabet his numbers like as far as Ezra's concerned, school at school is easier than school with his parents. Because ah. when we get the going, it's workbook, <laughs> it's time, it's repeat that. It's mm-hmm. especially COVID, like we really, really got a chance to like really, really sit with him and understand how he learns. Um, I do remember when we were working with um someone at his school that was just so pressed to put on his paperwork that he had all of these issues and I had to go back and forth with her like over and over again to um to make sure the wording was separate like she just wanted to say like oh you know based off of these delays you know we know for sure that this is going to be this and that is going to be that and I was like well no you know that 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 can't be it like you have to leave some room for improvement because you know, these these papers follow them. Yeah. And then even with applying for school in Charlotte, he's going to a charter school now, they're asking for that paperwork from the school to see what it is that they said about how he learns and how he functions. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it just made me realize that you have to you have to be that parent. You have to be anal. You have to say, I don't like the way that looks. And they have to remove it, you know, just because someone tells you no, that doesn't mean that's the answer. So I've had a few instances where I've had to, you know, buck up 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, just to make sure that, you know, with following him in terms of, you know, these paperwork and the assessment, you know, does leave room for improvement. And it's not about, I think people either categorize parents as either being in denial or just wanting free services. Um, but it's, it's neither one. It's the fact that I'm a parent and there's room for improvement. So it doesn't have to be just one or the other. It just means that I need to make sure there's space for him to grow without you telling me that this is the box that he needs to remain in. Mm-hmm. I love um, you, you. What you just shared is just, is just so rich uh, with sort of insight that I think parents can find useful because I think a lot of parents and coming from the classroom, there are some parents, not all, who kind of just defer to the teach to the teachers and the mm-hmm. evaluators. So whatever they say, it must be right. Um, but parents are the experts in their children's lives, right? Mm-hmm. And children are the experts in their own lives as well. I was just saying this yesterday as we were talking to the young people. So I love you come in with an empowered sense of uh no, you're not about to tell me. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I value what you have to say as a professional, but also my word is really paramount to whatever it is that you get to say. So um, I love that you're you're sharing that part of your experience um, with our listeners, which takes us sort of into this next question that we have around this law that was just passed in Idaho, where they're actually making it mandatory for districts to form committees of at least 50% non-educators, including parents mm-hmm. of current students, so that they can review new texts, materials, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanted to just see what your thoughts are on a law like this. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's in one specific space, um, but I, I, I wonder if laws like this will kind of spread across the country. So what are your thoughts on a law like this? And if you were on one of these kinds of committees, what sort of things would you want to be putting forth in terms of uh, the curriculum? Um, I do think in theory, these ideas are good. Um, I think that, like I said, learning happens outside of the classroom more so than in the classroom. So, you know, I think it is wise to have a group of people that can work collaboratively with teachers to just figure out, you know, what is the best thing for for children, especially at certain age groups. Um, I do think it's a good idea. If I was on something like that, I think that, you know, just for me and my experience with my own children, um, I think time to just think. I think, you know, we we put pressure on children and I see the I see the remnants of that with my own son to just produce and be, you know, just be on it and, you know, would you get on this test and are you reading at this level and do you know this, that we don't really make time for them to think. We don't give time for them to just be in nature. We don't give time for them to grow as people as well as like these academic or sports or what you know whatever your thing is with your children that I think can sometimes leave the person behind um I think um how funny I was listening to an old professor of mine recently having a conversation um he's traveling through Egypt with a group of people and he said that there was a five-year-old on this trip and they asked one of the group leaders you know how do men become gods you know, just in reference to like the Egyptians and building the pyramids, like what do you have to do as a mere man to want to become a god? And the man answered him and said that 
when you have time to think, then you can tap into your creative intelligence. When you tap into your creative intelligence, then you can maximize your human potential. That really, really stuck with me because I feel like even when our children aren't performing, then they're on iPads and switches all day. And it's like, well, when do you get to just draw your finger in the dirt, you know, and maybe by doing that, then you'll think of something. And then maybe by thinking of something then you can really hone in on your passion and really be, you know, a human that can really change the world and do amazing things. So if I could do anything like that, it would be have them do nothing, you know, because all the rest of the 49 of y'all are going to have them do a different thing. Okay. So my thing would be, let's just sit, let's talk, let's take a walk in nature. You know, what do you think about? What, what are the thoughts that come in your head and you say, oh, no, nah, that's no big deal. Like, let's tap into that a little bit more. Shout out to that. Do nothing. This is like my goal in life. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I like, I remember being so ambitious, like, oh, I want to do this. And then I am and I do things and it's fine. It's cute. But mm-hmm. days I want to do nothing. People are like, oh, what are you doing within the weekend? And nothing. What are you doing vacation? <laughs> nothing like I'm so good with it but it is in those quiet spaces that I get not only just reprieve and rest which I need yes but those are when my best ideas come mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. um, so I appreciate you imagine if we teach our children to tap into that yeah. how that will inform you know who they become when they're like 18 or 19 and can choose and major that matters rather than you know, just going for the typical ones that really don't speak to who they are. Exactly. Like Ja was saying, well, I have like nine friends who chose psychology. Just for what? For what? <laughs> not about to be psychologists. Nine of y'all. Right. Not all nine of y'all. Maybe three, but not all nine. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so that's interesting. I want to pick in or, or dig in on something you said rather about in theory, you said. In theory, <laughs> the committee. So say more about that. Why do you say in theory? Because parents sometimes they're just full of shit to be honest you know what I mean they just want their kids to be the best they're really not concerned about children as a whole right um and then it just becomes like this this measuring stick you know I think that when you're talking about children then you also have to consider the fact that children are different children learn different um it just can't be about you know did our school get a hundred percent you know college acceptance rates like that's cool and I get it, but so many of our children are so empty inside, but they have the grades and they have the scores that, you know, I guess on paper will show otherwise. So it's like, you know, unless, you know, me with a kid that maybe had a speech delay and maybe you with a kid that speaks seven languages, you know, how do we come together and help our children? You know, I think that's a bigger conversation than oh, well, I want my kid to go to Harvard. So let me backtrack how to make that happen in a group where there's a billion other children, you know, it just becomes self-centered rather than, you know, like a collaborative effort. It's so true. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true, not just about parents, it's just like humans and just the way that the system is set up. It's really not about like caring for human beings and for this next generation. It is about like measuring, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, my kid, your kid speaks two. My kid speaks five. Oh, my kid backpacked through France. Oh, my kid backpacked through the north of Africa. Like, you know, it's just all of this, like, um, and then it just becomes like a a competition as opposed to, you know. um, Which is why I think they then lean into, you know, games and YouTube. Because I do notice that that's a thing that then 
makes them be able to relate to one another. So whether your parent does A or B, if we all, what's everyone now, if we all play Kirby and Sonic games and we watch, you know, whoever these people are on YouTube that these kids watch all the time, like that becomes their common thread. And even that can be dangerous. So it's like, we have to stop creating divides so early, you know, so that kids can really be kids. Cause all kids want to do is play, have fun, eat a snack. You know, we end up eliminating that when it's like, well, mine does this and then yours does that. It's just too early to be playing those games. It really is. Yeah. And do we ever have to play them? I mean, no, we don't. That's really the takeaway. It's Mm -hmm. like what you do is for you. It don't got to be for me. And we don't have to compare what you do to what I do. No. They really don't have anything to do with each other unless we decide that we want them to, in which case, you say, like, my kid had a speech delay, yours speaks three languages, less. You know, Mm -hmm. then, okay, it's not about comparing. It's about how can we come together? Because there's something Mm -hmm. that your child has that this other child could benefit from and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Let's figure that out together as opposed to like trying to be in a a language competition that we don't really need to do. With five-year-olds. Yeah, with (laughs) five-year-olds. Like, you sound crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, So along with this, right, kind of thinking about these various experiences you have and knowing kind of like what parent world can be like, what are some pieces of advice or some gems, if you will, that you would <laughs> have for, for parents out there? I would say the the quicker you let go of that kid in your head that you thought you were going to have and really look at the one you have, I think you can really, um, the ebbs and flows of it, you know, that you do have your hard days, but it's more of like a wave. I feel like the times that I was the most frustrated were the times that I was trying to figure out the thing right then and there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the times where I was, you know, trying to, you know, didn't understand why this was this. So I was trying to like fix it. And I think, I think a conversation with you one, one day reminded me, like, you really don't see your work in real time. Like you see it in hindsight, you know? And as long as you know that, it help you get through the present thing. So yeah, you know, your kid may not be doing A, B, and C now, but you know what they wasn't doing two years ago and they're doing that now. Right. So let's kind of keep with that cycle rather than, you know, just trying to, to to fix things that maybe don't need to be fixed. Like who knows what their story is? Who knows what they may go on to do later in life and how this will inform, you know, how they move through the world. So you know, just understanding that and not being so hell-bent on how I think the story needs to go, um, I would say, yeah, it's really the only way to get through it. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very hard thing. It can be hard at times. Um, mm-hmm. Also, talking to them a lot. Like, I, I talk to Ezra now about things that I'm really interested in, not just, you know, the things that he's interested in. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of, like, stretch his mind and stretch yeah. his thinking. Um, so yeah, just, I find like when I have a thought like, oh, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should talk about this. Those are the moments where I really see, you know, the most magic, um, and not ignoring my parental intuition when it comes to things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's not only about making sure they wash and feeding them, you know, it's about those moments when they'll then remind you, oh, mommy, remember when right. we did this? And I'm like, oh, you were paying attention. Yeah. And I think about that. That didn't take nights of planning, right? Sometimes right. we can get so caught up in that too, where we want to make sure it's done in this perfect way, where it was like, oh, when we walked to the mailbox and you told me, oh, yesterday he told me um, 
I think it's good that you that you had your friends call you by your middle name when you got to high school because there are a lot of Ashleys in the world. So Mercedes was cool. I told that boy that randomly one day, like randomly. I don't even know where we were. And he was like, well, which one is your name? And I was like, oh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he reminded me of that yesterday. So those moments were the ones where it's like, oh, oh. when you think of something, say it. They're yeah. Listening. yeah, they really, really are. That's like... It's one of the joys of parenting for me. Mm -hmm. Have a random conversation one day, and you're like, "Oh, okay." Mm -hmm. Like, this thing is going okay. Yeah. So now, what would you say to educators, educators, principals, folks that work in in, in schools in in general? What would you say to them? Thank you. Mm. Job. I would say thank you because the ones that get it really are priceless. Um. It's almost like being a second parent to like 20 kids at a time. Um, I would also say just leave room for growth, you know? And I know that all parents aren't the same. All parents don't put forth the same effort. But I think that sometimes parents can learn from teachers. So, you know, even though if you're not the type of parent that likes to do schoolwork or likes to do whatever, if you really care about your kid and a teacher is telling you, you know, you need to work on this, maybe that will inspire them or just give them a nudge to, or maybe even say, hey, you know, I'll give you this. You sit here and do this with the kid. You know, it could just be a printout or something like that. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think everything revolving around children is a learning curve for the adult. So just helping parents, you know, who care enough to kind of like get on the bandwagon. Because I've heard stories where a parent might not have been that involved and then they had a good teacher and that good teacher changed the parent's life as much as it changed the kid's life. Mm-hmm. Just giving just giving space for that. Because you never know. And who knows where those parents come from. Maybe they didn't have, you know, people who cared about their learning. So it can always change. It can always change. And I think teachers don't realize that, like, the level of influence that they get to have, not just over the young people in their classroom, but like you said, over the parents as well. I think that's this is significantly under uh, untapped relationship. Mm-hmm. Often. Yeah. Like it's, it's not cultivated as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so all I really- my favorite teachers, my mother talked about them as if they were her favorite teachers, like literally. And the teacher, Dr. Carr from Howard that I listen to weekly now, my mother listens to him weekly as well. Mm. So a good teacher is not just for the student. You know, it can be for the whole family. Shout out to that. Well, on that note, I want to just say, Thank you. This Thank is like, you. I mean, you know. We did it. We, did it. we, we talked did. about that around phone. <laughs> we did. We did. Uh, listeners, this is like something that Ashley and I have been trying to make happen for a very long time. But you see how things go? Just like we were talking yeah. about parenting, right? You of course, seed, right? At some point, that seed will blossom. So mm-hmm. I just uh, thank you for hopping on with me and just talking. I hope that we can have more of these conversations. We always offer the opportunity for our guests to share their social media platforms. And I want to just, I wanted to make sure I did this. I almost forgot because you curate, and I use this word intentionally, a very diverse and beautiful I think collection of images and videos, which is what Instagram is supposed to be about, but we won't go into mm-hmm. that. It's become this whole other thing now, but I think you 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 really do curate a space on your Instagram that I think is very beautiful and also highlights your children, most specifically in a super beautiful way. 
So my Instagram is A M M as in milk, I guess, Sumter, S U M P T E R. Um, yeah, and that's me on Instagram. I'm trying to do the TikTok thing. It's a little, it's a little hazy, but on the <laughs> sweet Sadie's that was, you know, cute and to the point. But yeah, I post pictures of my kids all day. I post things that they like to do. I think that's always helpful just to see what other parents are doing. Um, things that just, you know, make learning fun, you know, rather than the just straight to workbook stuff. So yeah, that's me. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. Hi, Louisa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yes. Hi. So my name is Louisa and I'm a first gen Chicana indigenous woman that lives in California on Togba land. And I have three kids. One, my oldest is actually going into his sophomore year of college. My middle child is getting ready to start her first year of college. And I have in a rising first grader. So I'm here, I've worked in education for about 20 years off and on and at some capacity, nonprofit work um, as well. So I'm just happy to be here and thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you. And can you tell us a little bit about your experience with school? Yeah, you know, education, I'm very passionate about education in large part because of the experience that I had as, as a first gen. Um, I am the first of my family, the youngest of three daughters to be born in the United States. And uh, so the first one of my sisters and I to actually go through K through 12 here in the United States as well. And the first couple years of education were especially difficult for me. I was a very shy child. We spoke Spanish first at home. And because of the experience that my oldest sister, who is seven years older than me, so she probably would have been starting American schools, maybe by sixth, seventh grade, because of the difficulties that she had kind of acclimating to the American school system, she kind of made it her, her mission to come home from school to teach me English. So I did go into kinder knowing English, but because I was so shy and quiet, um, I I tended to be pigeonholed into either ESL courses or, you know, one of the earliest memories I have of being in kinder is hearing teachers talk about me and assuming that I wasn't intelligent, assuming that I didn't know English. And, you know, I was just kind of put in the corner a lot of and letting people here in the United States experience education. And so it's made me really passionate about it because there's this assumption, right, that we don't know English. And then there's the assumption beyond that, that that then translates into not being intelligent enough. And so there's always been this idea of feeling like I had to fight for my, my place in education, you know, from kinder through 12th grade and even into college and into graduate school. There's always this feeling of getting pigeonholed and if I'm not speaking up and if I'm not saying enough or talking enough this assumption that that then reflects on my intelligence so 
um, yeah, it's been pretty shaky to be in, you know, in education as a, as a first gen student, but I really like going to school. So I've punished myself many a times going back, <laughs> despite the fact that I tell myself I'll never go back again. Mm. You know, I just finished, uh, my doctorate not too long ago. And, um, you know, I feel really accomplished having that degree now. Has that experience or or rather, sorry, has your experience with school been different than your own children's experience then? Yeah, I, I think the biggest difference would be in terms of advocacy, right? So I've often told my my kids that my parents never asked me, do you have homework? They never asked me, you know, what is it that you're you're working on? And it wasn't in any way because they didn't care. It was just a certain trust that they had that the school system was going to be better for us. So this idea that we we were already winning because we're in American schools. And I think that there is also this this big piece of of, you know, my dad worked long hours and you know, we were pretty working class. My mom was home, but she was often busy kind of taking care of everything that goes on at home. Early on, there was, you know, the 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 feeling of of being marginalized because they were undocumented, you know, and until they got their documentation. I think that there was a lot of um, just things that we were just kind of getting by. So it, there wasn't the same interest and the same involvement. Now, fast forward to to my kids, and you know, on top of that, I have a degree in ethnic studies, and I have a you know a, a lot of experience with the educational system. I always had this idea that whatever I did was, you know, I had to do for my kids. So the advocacy was there. It was a huge component of how I've raised my kids through the K through 12 American system. Um, I supplemented a lot. So, you know, every chance that I got, I was teaching them what essentially now, become, you know, you, you hear about it as ethnic studies curriculum. You know, I was making sure that my kids were learning about the history of Chicanos, the history of people of color in the United States that they understood that whatever one page we got in the history books wasn't enough, right? So I was supplementing a lot with that. And then on top of that, um, you know, especially if I saw them facing similar difficulties that I faced when I was in education, I was involved. I was in the classroom. I was talking to the teachers. I was making sure that they knew that I was a presence and a force so that they couldn't be marginalized or stuck in a corner like I often was. And we did even, even then we still had those experiences, right? So my, my son tested into gate and even that was a difficulty trying to get him, you know, to get recognized and, you know, knowing that he was just kind of stuck in a corner with a math book because, you know, they had this idea that they were teaching the rest of the class and he could kind of figure it out on his own. So every step of the way, there has been this effort of advocacy on my part and so I would say that that has been the biggest difference is the amount of energy I've put into prioritizing their education. That's really powerful, Louisa. Do you have suggestions because of your, you know, experience, but also your involvement with the education world in such a variety of ways? Um, some of the parents out there, right, don't have that, and and probably many parents don't have that experience. So, what are some quick tips you might give them on ways that they could advocate for their own children? I think one of the, you know, when I have talked to parents in my own community, I say just show up if you can, right? Let them know that you're there. 
Um, you know, I've, I've even told my, my kids in high school, an email goes a long way when you're talking to a teacher, right? If you let them know that you're interested and that you're passionate about what you're doing. So the first, first bit of advice is always get involved some way, somehow, you know, be a, be a, a force in, in their lives and in their path for education. Um, and the second is also reviewing, right? We can look over what it is that our kids are learning, what it is that our kids uh, are being confronted with in education. So it's not just the the homework and what's coming home with them, but it's also all of the different current, you know, events that are happening and how does that, you know, relate to what they're learning in the classroom. That was one thing that I always like to do with my kids. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going over history, but what can you, you know, identify in current events that might be, you know, parallel to what we've experienced in history. And so making those connections so that it doesn't seem like something that's just part of the past, but that's very much a part of our present in order to, you know, in, in my spiritual philosophy, you know, we, in, and in our home, we really live by this idea of seven generations, right? So what is it that we're doing now that will affect the next seven generations? And so when I, when I talk to parents, it's, what can you do now to ensure that in the next, you know, years of your child's life, you're making a mark that you're making sure that they're aware that they know how to question what the, you know, everything around them. And so really fostering this idea at home of, you know, of critical thinking, you know, question it all, do your own research, right? Make it available. They have so much available to them now. And if a parent has a question about something that they're learning, you know, look it up learn with them. I've often in high school, if my kids uh, get assigned a new book that I've never read, I read it with them. And I don't necessarily inject my ideas into it, right? It's more of this, I just want to know what they're reading and why. And if they ask me, it's kind of nice to know that I'll have some type of a background for it so that I can give an honest opinion or, or answer. And if they don't, that's okay too. At least I know what's happening in their lives. Well, speaking of, and you, you spoke a little bit to this um, when you were answering that question and previously about ideas of around curriculum, thing, ways to make connections, um, things that, you know, you would supplement for, for your children. Uh, recently in Idaho, a law was passed called District Curricular Adoption Committees. And this law is making it mandatory to include about 50% non-educators in committees that include parents of current students to review and recommend new texts and materials for curriculum. What are your thoughts on this law? It's, well, it's definitely mixed, right? Because if I'm looking at it from the perspective of, of the work that's done been done in California. So in California, we have AB 101, where we're finally pushing to have ethnic studies curriculum in the high school. And it's exciting because it has been a grassroots effort to get everyone's history included, especially in California. We, I mean, not especially, but specifically because of our students, I, I just think it's so important for them to know what's happened here in California. And so it's, it's exciting. And a lot of that was done by grassroots efforts, right? Folks that were interested and wanted to make sure that representation um, in the schools and in the curriculum kind of reflected the population of California. You know, then the flip side of that is is listening to all of the news reports where you have parents that are storming into, you know, school council meetings and demanding 
certain books, you know, get banned or certain, um, you know, presentation of material no longer be presented to the students. And so it's such an interesting time in our society that really, it worries me because we're, we're right on the edge of, of what could potentially be more harmful to us in the long run, because who is it that's making these decisions, right? Who decides what that curriculum is? Do we want input? Sure, it'd be great to get input, but the sole decision shouldn't come down to what we as parents believe. Like, I really do think that. I mean, I consider myself to be fairly intelligent and I know a lot about the curriculum, but I didn't study that. It is not my job to set that curriculum. You know, that's what we have teachers for. That's what we have curriculum development for, because we've already seen examples of what happens if we don't have, if if we don't have some kind of reining in on that department, right? So one thing that comes to mind in Florida, we got PragerU creating these wild, not like, I, I don't know. I mean, it was, it's all based on opinion. It's not even based on, on facts. And let's say 50% of the, the parents agree to that and say, yeah, let's, let's put in PragerU videos into the curriculum. And then you're just completely gaslighting you're completely marginalizing you know and and it's state state sanctioned right so i i feel really passionate about that because obviously it's important to have parent voice and we've seen what's happened in history when parents are not listened to right so i'm thankful for the advocacy of parents especially in the chicano movement every effort every push that we've made to have better access to education is thanks to the parents and the community Yet, we also see where it can go really wrong. And, and I think that's that's where we are now. We're on the cusp of really seeing how that's going to hurt our communities. Yeah, we talk a lot about that uh, in different episodes of the podcast about banned books and different level of harm that different parent rights has brought um, into the school communities for, for students. If you were on one of these committees, uh, what would you recommend or or name as being important uh, integrate and integrate it into curriculum for students? Well, I, I think again, I'd, I'd lean towards the example of AB 101 here in California to say that we've allowed uh, professionals as well as committees to come together to decide what that curriculum is going to look at look like, right? Um, so my recommendation would be that it's important for us, yes, to, to, you know, in the case of AB 101, to get that grassroots support and that community support. But at the end of the day, it's also important to leave that to, to some of the professionals to start making those decisions for us, right? So it's to trust that our, our education system is doing their best when it comes to, the, you know, what's what we need for our students. And that's really hard for me to say, right? Because at the end of the day, I've had a lot of issues with the institution of education and how education has also perpetuated a lot of the marginalization that has happened for communities of color. But in the case, you know, I always go back to this idea that everything is geographical, right? So if if right now the momentum with AB 101 is looking good, then then I'm all for it. But as a parent, yeah, I kind of like the idea that I can speak out and say this this isn't working. So I would say that if we could continue to 
offer an opportunity for parents to have a voice and an opinion, right? And to create spaces where we can all kind of have a dialogue without shouting each other down. Um, that would be great at the end of the day. But I, you know, I'm, I'm, I am a little worried with where we are with our public school education. I mean, in all fairness, I think the other thing um, that I'd have to add now is to say that you know, because of the worries and the concerns that I've had with public school education, I've chosen independent schools for my children. So, it, you know, it makes it also really hard for me to to sometimes go into these spaces, these public spaces, because, you know, sometimes those of us who have chosen independent schools, we kind of get silenced, you know, oh, well, you gave up on the public schools. And it's like, well, my children are not your guinea pigs, right? If I've seen and I've advocated and I still haven't received the, the the type of education that I think my children deserve, then I'm gonna keep fighting for where, you know, for that right space for them so that they have those opportunities. As a parent, what advice do you have for educators, be it in an independent school, public school, private school? What advice would you offer? I I feel as though the advice revolves around uh, revolves a lot around this idea of critical thought. You know, we 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 have some facts, we have you know information. You you know you have your curriculum, but one of the things that one of the, the most special kind of moments I ever had in high school was this one teacher who had this amazing lesson when he was teaching 1984 that has stuck with me to this day. And it really was about critical thinking that regardless of what it is that I give you in the classroom, always make space for your students to question, to work it out for themselves, right? To teach students why it is that this information is necessary. And I think that that is something that I've seen, and it's not perfect, but I've seen that space given to students in independent schools is this idea that, you know, here's the curriculum, maybe we don't like it. Maybe we want to question where it's coming from. My, my kids have had to face, you know, teachers who were teaching strictly by the book and then have, you know, how to say, excuse me, no, we, you know, we want a bigger um, voice from indigenous authors or indigenous speakers and indigenous perspective. And the school gave them that opportunity. So I'd say for educators, question, learn, you know, teach your kids to question everything, teach them to have their opinions and to, to form their opinions based on some amazing, you know, research and facts. That's the kids nowadays, they have everything, they have everything at their reach. Right. And so it's really important for them to start understanding, you know, how to even question what they see on the, on computers. Is it real? Is it not? How can we have a safe conversation so that we can start working out and fleshing out some of these ideas like in safe spaces. I, I'm totally for that. So when, when, I, when I think about you know, how we should act towards our students and as educators, I also think about it in terms of how overall as a society, we, we kind of look at children. You know, we talk a lot about children's rights and we all, we talk so passionately, passionately about how we, you know, want to protect our, our kids and we want to do all this great stuff for our kids, but the actions don't always align. And I think that that was one of the most frustrating experiences that I had as a child is feeling as though I didn't exist, that I was invisible in education. Right. And so that experience, you know, it, 
it really embedded itself into me is this idea that if I'm quiet, there's so much room for people to make these assumptions about who I am as a human being, as a person, right? And so one of the one of the lessons that I've taken from that in my own personal work as as a mother and as just being a human being, you know, working with my my kids is always giving them an opportunity to have a voice in the discussion and never making them feel at home, marginalized or silenced. I mean, this is something that we practice at home, even in terms of apologizing out loud to them and saying, if, you know, if I've made a misstep to say, look, I'm, I make mistakes, I'm human. And those conversations I think are so important at home because it gives them this idea of how they should be treated outside of the home. Right. And so, um, you know, so I experienced it. I've tried to teach my kids to never feel silenced, to never, you know, one of the, the things about being a Latina, you know, especially from a traditional Mexican home is this idea that we always had to respect our elders, respect your elders, respect your elders, to the point that sometimes we did it at our own demise in a sense, right? And so I've always taught my kids, like, if something doesn't feel right, it's okay if you don't want to say hello to that person. It's okay if you don't want to, you know, interact with them, Right. That doesn't mean anything less about you as a human being or whatever. But it's it's also fascinating because when you go to to the to the doctor's office, not everybody talks to the children. You know, and I find myself sometimes explaining, like, you know, to my daughter, this is what's gonna happen to my six-year-old. This is what's gonna happen. This is what the doctor's going to do to try to show the physician this, you know, this is what you should be doing with kids, right? I have had a couple that do and they talk to the the patient, but I, I'm always stunned by how little we pay attention to our youth for as much as they matter you know, to our society in general. Like it's so important. It's so extremely important for us to, to acknowledge their space, their voices, their feelings, and, and to support it. And I think that when it comes to education, we could, we could, we could use, you know, that lesson and in applying it to make sure that kids know, you know, don't talk about them in front of students. It really, I'm like, what, in my 40s? And I still remember something that happened from kindergarten, right? It's so important for us to really set that example for our youth. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that and adding on to it because it's so true. You know, we see it so frequently, right? People not making space for voices. I mean, you've said it in just almost every single part of your answers today, here today, or part of our conversation rather of where's the opportunity to listen to each other? Where's the opportunity to make space for voice? Where is the opportunity to not make assumptions maybe because someone is not using their voice? There's a lot of reasons why that might not be happening. And and it's up to us, particularly adults in that space, to figure out how to support and provide opportunities for our, our youth to speak up, to use their voice, uh, whether that's their actual voice or w- whatever way they express themselves, um, it's important to embrace that. So yeah, so educators and that's that's a big piece to take away from today. How are you incorporating 
student voice into the classroom. Louisa, thank you again for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. So thank you, of course, for listening to Educate Us. Uh, as a proud member of the Leon Media Network, please be sure to download us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you can get your podcasts. If you're listening via Apple Podcasts, please, please be sure to leave us five stars because that really it does help us out. And make sure to join us in the conversation by emailing the show. As Nick always says, we like to keep it simple. The email address is theeducateusshow at gmail.com. Thanks a bunch for listening. We'll catch you soon.